Welcome to this week's episode of the Triathlete Hour. I'm your host and editor-in-chief of Triathlete Magazine, Kelly O'Mara. Now, today we'll be talking to triathlete-turned-fastest-known-time record holder, Alyssa Gudeski. Alyssa is a pro triathlete known for her 30-plus Ironmans. She's actually lost count a little bit. And a few years ago, she was looking for a new challenge. Enter Fastest Known Times. Now, Fastest Known Time, or FKT, is where you attempt to become the fastest person to ever traverse a popular route, like the Grand Canyon or the Pacific Crest Trail. Alyssa achieved the women's FKT on the Vermont Long Trail two years ago, and then this past year, she went after and got the Adirondacks High Peaks. FKTs exploded in popularity during 2020. It was something we could all do during COVID. And so Alyssa explains a little bit about them, what it takes, why it's worth it for a triathlete, and why you shouldn't be intimidated. Plus, some of the crazier and intimidating parts of her multi-day adventures. Alyssa and I have been friends for a long time, and this is a fun episode. Hopefully, it inspires you to go for a walk in the woods. But first, before we get there, I wanted to clarify for all of you what we're doing with our podcast this year and how to find our training and gear podcast fitter and faster if you're looking for it. This show here, The Triathlete Hour, is our weekly interview show where we'll be interviewing a range of people this year across the sport every Wednesday. Now, our other show, Fitter and Faster, combines our training and gear info in one big episode each month. We'll focus on one one topic every month in depth. This month, that show is all about training zones. We'll have a little clip for you in a second, but to listen to the whole show, you can find Fitter and Faster at its own feed on iTunes and Spotify, or subscribe to the Triathlete Magazine feed on SoundCloud. Now, I wanted to apologize to those of you who've been subscribed to Triathlete Magazine and missed out on this show when it aired last week. We moved Fitter and Faster to its own show platform so that you can find all your training and gear info in one place. Go listen to the episodes, leave a review, share with friends. We'll include the links to subscribe in the show notes here. Now, before we get to Alyssa's interview, here's a quick excerpt from this week's Fitter and Faster episode on Training Zones with our managing editor, Emma Kate Lidbury. Okay, so let's talk training zones. We all know there's a difference between going hard and going easy, but what exactly are training zones and how do you establish them? There are a variety of ways to break up the zones on a scale from very easy to very hard, but coaches commonly use training zones one through five, with one being the easiest. So let's break down what that means. Zone one means easy, aerobic recovery training on a scale of one to 10 in your perceived effort, think three or four. You're just moving blood through your body and everything should feel very easy and very relaxed. Zone two is a step up from there. This is endurance training. It's around a 5 out of 10 in perceived effort. You can have conversations with your training buddies and friends and everything should feel very sustainable for a long amount of time. After that, it brings us up to zone 3, medium endurance training. We're talking a strong but sustainable effort, a 6 or a 7 out of 10 on the scale of perceived exertion and uh, it should feel hard but it's comfortably so. For most athletes, this is where you would race a half Ironman or a half marathon. Which leads us to zone four, probably the one that we all dread. It's your threshold training zone. And yes, we'll talk more about that word threshold later in the show and what it means. But uh, zone four is pretty much an eight or a nine out of 10. It's hard. It's your maximal steady state effort. And for elite athletes, this is probably the hardest they can sustain for an hour or so. But you can go harder. And that's zone five. It's very hard. And this is all about power and speed. It's an effort you can only sustain for a minute or so. It's high end, high intensity work. Of course, just knowing these zones is one thing and using them is something else altogether. They really only have relevance to your training once you've established where those different zones are for you. You want to know and learn what pace or effort is for zone three versus zone four or five, for example. And then you want to actually follow that across all of your workouts. This is best achieved through benchmark testing. And that means you do a test to establish where you're at, you establish your threshold, and then you figure out your zones from there. We'll talk more later about specific tests that you can do. But yes, you do need to test in each sport, swim, bike, and run, as the zones will vary across the sports. Once you've tested, you'll have a benchmark for where you're at. That could correlate to a pace, a perceived effort, a heart rate, or power numbers on the bike, for example. Uh, The swim pace you can hold in the pool for a 1,000-yard TT might give you a base pace that you can then extrapolate your zones off. And we talk about this with Ryan later in the show. 
but you can also use a variety of metrics, heart rate, power, perceived effort. Coaches use these zones when building out a training plan and a certain proportion of work needs to be higher intensity and a certain amount needs to be lower intensity. And depending on your skill set, experience, fitness, goals, and of course, the time of the year, these amounts could vary. But one thing is for sure. The physiological effect and adaptations that come from training in one zone versus another can have a big impact on your development, recovery, and performance. All right, this week we're joined by Alyssa Godeski, who has the FKT fastest known time for Vermont's Long Trail and Adirondack 46 High Peaks, which you're going to have to explain to us. But more importantly, she's a triathlete, and we've known each other for, God, how, like 10 years? Like, we met on the internet. I know. Kelly, I was like a fangirl of yours in the early <laughs> years when you were doing Olympic distance racing and you got married on crutches. I like <laughs> really remember reading those blog posts. It was such a good time. And watching you like come into your own as a triathlete, I was like, if she can do it, I can do it. But yeah, I mean, it had to have been like 10 years ago now. Back when like blogs were still a thing. I still blog. So if people want to read that, they can go to alyssagodesky.com. <laughs> <laughs> My husband still refers to uh the triathlete, you know, entire publication online as a blog. So yeah, that's pretty I'm, fair. You've, um, you've definitely graduated to bigger and better. So Alyssa though, uh, I mean, you're, you, how many Ironmans have you done now? Like 33, 35, 40, something like that. 33 or 34. I actually, I have on a to-do list somewhere around the house to actually like sit down and like file my results and count them once and for all. But I think it's 33. Okay. And you started out though, and now you kind of come full circle back to being an ultra runner in college. You just were like, I'm going to go run really far in the woods. Kind of. So I stumbled into it, not really meaning to. So I actually, I played lacrosse. So I went to two colleges. I started two years at the Naval Academy and then transferred to the University of Virginia. And when you're at Navy, you have to play a sport. So I started out playing lacrosse and it was just a club sport at that time. And uh, long story short, I didn't want to play lacrosse anymore. And so <laughs> I was like, okay, well, you know, you can kind of get away without a sport for a little bit. And then eventually they're like, all right, Alyssa, you got to either do intramurals or join a sport. And so I had a friend who was running for the Navy marathon team. And he was like, cool, just come out and run with us. Like you like to run, you know, you'll be great at this. And so I went out, I talked to the coach and he said that, they don't really have a lot of criteria. Again, it was like a club sport, right? right. So, um, and they had all just run the Chicago marathon it was like their big marathon for the fall. And basically people would try and qualify for the Boston marathon. And then if they did, they're on the team. If not like try again later. Right. So he's like, Ooh, that just happened. You're, you know, a little bit late. So he, he was like, well, there, there is this other race. The JFK 50 mile is coming up next month. And if you do that and you just finish, we'll take you on the team and then you can get your Boston qualifier in the spring. And I mean, I needed a sport, right? Like I didn't have a lot of options. It was like that or like handball or something. And so I was like, I like to run, like I can do it. And, you know, I had crazy friends too. And so basically I, I went out that day and I ran 16 miles. It's not like I was running a ton of distance already. I think I had run 10 before, like really in my life. And then when I went out that day and I ran 16, I was like, okay, surely I can get through 50, right? Like other people surely. can do it, right? So I gathered two other friends. We made a little team. Ultra running was not big at that time. So you could register for JFK 50, you know, just before. And went out and then yeah, I ran it. So and I, I loved it. My friends that I had duped into it, like hated it. And I was like, this is great. This is the next big thing. So, um, you know, that spring I did, I ran with the Navy marathon team and I ran a Boston qualifier, I think three weeks before the Boston marathon. And this is how crazy it was. It was, I think 2006 and you could get in, you could run your qualifying time. And then three weeks before send it in and they would be like, okay, you can come run Boston. Really? So, oh, <laughs> You know, that was awesome. Um, and so I got to run Boston that year. And then I ended up transferring and going to the University of Virginia. So, um, you know, I, I now had this like new sport of ultra running that I was doing. But now I was also kind of in more of an environment around like normal things and like right. real college. Right. So when I got to UVA, um, I 
needed friends. And so, you know, transferring college as a junior, uh, it's not the easiest thing because everyone definitely has friends from their first two years of college. So I wanted to join a sport and they had a club triathlon team. And so that was really how I got into triathlon. And I was like dating a guy at the time. And so he had done a few triathlons. So he helped me kind of figure out the pieces and what I needed to do with the gear. And the UVA team was really laid back. And, um, you know, I just started to meet people through that and, and picked up triathlons. I did a couple Olympic distance and stuff like that. And I had a job at the running store. So I also was able to keep running, trail running and doing some ultra running around Charlottesville, which is a very popular place for trail running. Mountains are super close. So ultra runs were like happening there, which is pretty unique, I guess. So kind of all those pieces fell into play. And I kept just kind of doing a little bit of triathlon, a little bit of ultra running and like enjoying real college for a couple years until I graduated and went to Baltimore to work a real job and like enter the real world. And that was when I really probably shifted gears more towards triathlon because once again, like in my motivation on search for friends as a young adult, <laughs> right? Like you're motivating for everything. Yeah. For everything. I was like, okay, well now I'm in a new city and I need to find friends again. So let me try the running group. Right. And so through the running group, I found road runners, which was cool. And then I found some triathletes. And so I started to do, you know, more like road based things, I Mm -hmm. guess, at that point. And a couple of the guys I trained with were talking about Ironman. And of course, at that point, I had now done a a couple 50 milers and stuff like that. And so I was like, Oh, well, you know, surely, if I can run for eight, nine, 10 hours, like I can do an Ironman. So like, sign me up, this sounds better, like you get to switch muscles, right? So in 2009, I believe was my first Ironman, uh, Ironman Louisville. And I loved it. Yeah, it was like super fun. I was living the dream as like, early 20s, just rocking out doing Ironman, then going in the woods sometimes and running like 50 or 100 miles and like, loving Is this it. The dream? Okay. Yeah, okay. that's like everyone's dream, right? <laughs> and then, you know, sometimes I would make it back for like to get up on Sunday and have brunch and like, do the normal, new, normal young 20 things. So um, then, you know, as things do, you start to just want to get serious and ultra running at that time again. Right. So before 2010 still hadn't really boomed. Um, and I mean, even now that it has boomed, it's not like many people, if anyone is making really well-paying careers and things like that out of it. So when I started to feel like things were coming together, I was like actually accumulating some good results and like maybe had some some promise and things like that. I steered myself more towards like Ironman as something that I saw had like a path and a progression to like get serious with and go further, you know, with like qualifying for the world championships, doing that as an amateur, then maybe being able to compete as a professional and things like that. So I really saw that pretty early and was like, that's something I think, you know, I'd like to, to pursue. And then, um, started. So you like basically were doing everything before it was cool is what I'm hearing here. Yes. I was a trendsetter. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But I also had a lot of very like middle-aged good friends, which is hilarious because everyone in the ultra scene was, you know, forties and fifties really. And so it was just like an interesting time. And they loved the fact that I was out there with them. And it was just like hilarious sometimes because it was like, I mean, you know, the difference between a 20 year old and a 50 year old is is pretty big, right? But I also was able to see some women that I still could run with today. And they were still running so strong and like crushing me right in their 40s and 50s, that I think that definitely like ingrained the sense of ultra running will always be there and could always be something I can come back to and you're good at later in life and things like that. And that definitely kind of steered me towards right. I can see that triathlon and Ironman too. And you were also doing college try obviously before it got, I mean, we apparently were doing college try at the same time. We like looked up our results one time to see how we did. Good <laughs> old Tuscaloosa. Yeah. yeah. I mean, back then that was like the first second year, you know, USAT even had like a USAT nationals. Like it was still kind of grassrootsy. I don't even think I really understood the concept of like nationals and like, you know, because like that event was so low key. I hadn't grown up playing like really serious sports, you know, to a point where like 
you really understood competing for some sort of national thing. And I think I just didn't see myself as someone that competitive. So I was like, whatever, I'll just go to this race. Like you guys, it's in April. Okay, sign me up, you know, like road trip. Cool. But we were and like thinking back to that. I bet if we comb through results, we'd find a lot more names of people who oh, yeah. got to keep I mean, it at that level. I mean, there were like a lot. I mean, I looked at them at one point when we were talking about it. And there were a lot of people. I mean, uh, I actually met Ben Hoffman, I think, that year. We, <laughs> we talked about it. Kevin Collington won that year. We had a big after party. Like, you know, so it's it's kind of funny because um, now it's so serious. Now it's like very structured um, and it's like a little different. You kind of feel like not the same. Yeah, I think, yeah, I mean, the glory days, something gets lost, right? But at least we have those stories where we can be like, back in my day, we used to just strap a radio to our bike. We didn't have AirPods, you know, like. <laughs> strap a radio, like what? <laughs> but eventually, like you're saying, obviously, you know, you got more serious, it got more serious. You started, because eventually you decided to leave your fancy AOL job and become a professional triathlete. Yeah, and so in, in 20... The end of 2010, 2011 was when I really found myself at that crossroads for like triathlon. And I hired Hillary Biscay as a coach. And she was kind of someone who in that first year as we were working together and we were seeing that progress, like as some people do, right? Like progress mm -hmm. comes so quickly in that first year as you're learning yeah. triathlon and actually getting like professional coaching. And so we started to realize like I did have potential and I could maybe compete at higher levels. And so she was a really instrumental mentor for me at that point who was able to say like, you know, as I would say, I'd love to race as a pro, you know, she'd be like, okay, start saving money, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> really start saving. Like that is the number one thing you can possibly do because that's going to help be your springboard and like your safety net later. If you, you do want to do that. Right. So, and she just kind of helped me, like, you know, have the courage to to try it. You know, I think I was surrounded by really supportive people with my family and my managers at AOL at that point. Like everyone, once I talked to them, was so supportive and was like, absolutely, you need to go do this. But like, I think I would never have even taken that step had it not been for Hillary to be like, okay, like, let's just have these conversations, see what happens. And then, you know, we figure it out. Like, how are you going to make money? Are you going to move? Like, let's get you somewhere where training's better and things like that. She helped just like have me ask those questions to have me put a plan in place. And I think, I mean, at least for like a lot of times we talk to, you know, we talk to Sebi Keenley or we talk to like the big names and they're, but like you're living the, uh, the middle, the, the, what's the word? Working class pro lifestyle, right? Like the middle of the road. <laughs> Yes, that would, that might be even generous, I guess, to say, especially at some points. And it was like, yeah, I mean, that first year, 2014, I I had I owned a home in Baltimore, so I needed to rent that out to make like a little bit of money from that to to help add to my income. So I moved down to Charlottesville, Virginia, because I again, like, I knew I could access the UVA gyms. I knew the training from college, and it would just be a good, solid place. Um, I had lined up like a part-time job helping with marketing for a local race company, um, and I was nannying, you know. And so I was bouncing between like monthly furnished Airbnb basement rentals um, or like spare bedrooms in my friends' homes, and you know, nannying, like doing training doing a little work, coaching a little bit at that time as I was starting to build that up. And then like, yeah, picking the kids up from school and feeding them spaghetti for dinner. I mean, honestly, I find like in some ways that's like so hard to actually be like constantly stressed about money because I, I did it for a long time, right? like money and work and then also trying to get the training in. If you could just like stop and focus. I mean, obviously everyone has a job and we all know how that works, but there's something about trying to do all those things at the same time that doesn't feel like it, it leads to your best performances? Probably not. But, you know, if you... It depends on the person, too. It depends a lot on the person. And, like, right, in some ways, I think... I think Hillary and I weren't thinking I was going to be the next Chrissy Wellington, right? Like, right. at some levels, you look at the data in front of you. Can I compete as a pro and be competitive? Yes. You know, am I going to win the world championships? Probably not unless like we're missing something and like, you know, <laughs> so I think that knowing where I could be competitive gave me a little leeway. Like, am I willing to hustle and to mm -hmm. have to live out my dream and to compete as a pro and compete against the best and see how that goes 
and have to hustle for it, you know? Um, and I would say like now in hindsight, looking back those years of having to really do so much and like be moving nonstop and be hustling to make money and make sure I was paying rent and things like that have helped me like for where I am now, like for setting FKTs and doing that crazy stuff. That like mindset is something that is ingrained in me now for years, right? Like, and I have, it's just like a part of me now, I think. So I am able to take that and like make it a silver lining of like, well, it makes me do these like crazy things on the trails now. And I'm, I feel like it's easier now. So that's good. (laughs) Oh, you've done some pretty crazy things even before you started FKTs. Um, I guess people who don't know, like you've done back-to-back Ironmans, which you did like perfectly, right? You were like fifth and sixth in back-to-back Ironmans. You like, you've done, I don't even know how many in a year. I like lost count at one point, but a lot of crazy stuff. Yeah. There was one season where I did six Ironmans and I did two of them a week apart in different countries in Europe. And I think I went like, yeah, 943, you know, 953 or something like I was both sub 10, both I got a paycheck from. um, And it was, it was cool. Like I still think that was like my high, when I raced the most that year was probably like 2015 or 2016. And I think that was my most solid year of Ironmanning. I've you know, I tried in later years to be like, okay, I'll focus on one or two and like really try and build and do that. And, you know, for one reason or another, things didn't come together. Um, so I would still say racing. I did my best when I was racing a ton. What would you, I mean, I know part of like doing that was trying to come up with like new challenges to create your own kind of goals and so all that. But, you know, what would you tell other people who want to do things? What did you learn? Pepto-Bismol, I remember, was key <laughs> in between to do it in between so you you need to like sleep have you you can't do the hustle and like do a million things in that week to between ironmans like that is the exception to that lifestyle right so the week between you sleep a ton you eat as much as you possibly can and you hope that like all of your travel and luggage makes it from one destination to the next so that you can actually unpack it and do it and I honestly would say like the second of the back-to-back races, generally I, I did it twice and felt better. Um, and I, I think I performed better in the second one each time, which is just so wacky. But I do, I think your body, you know, if you do the right kind of training and build to that, and then you respect your body with the fueling and, and the sleeping, you know, you'll come out, you'll come out okay with it. Was there ever a point then that you were like, you know what, now I'm going to, I'm going to do back-to-back on the same weekend. I'm going to do three. Was it like, I'm just going to keep up in the ante. (laughs) I have, you know, I always look at the calendar and I'm like, I guess I could do that. But there is like a thought process with time zones. Like I think it's, you always want to travel West. So you want your first one to be um, like the furthest East so that you're kind of gaining time as you travel to the next one. So it is quite hard to find ones that, um, you know, align with that. And I guess, Part of the challenge is probably I I do want to do be competitive, right? right? And so there becomes the point when like I'm like I'm sure I could do that, right? right? But like then I think I would start to just not be as competitive in the field, and so like maybe that's something for if I return to amateur racing at some point, I can see see something like that as a challenge. Do you like one a week for the whole year? Yeah. <laughs> <Great>. <laughs> Uh, it does, you do come up a lot because whenever somebody t- uh, says to me like, oh, I have this crazy, I'm going to do two Ironman. I'm like, well, let me tell you about my friend. So. <laughs> and I do. I mean, there have been people who have figured it out to do the Saturday and the Sunday yes. racing. Right. And I mean that, yeah, it's like, it's a whole ne- another level of crazy. So I don't know. So then obviously a couple of years ago, you kind of wanted a new challenge. And so you started looking at back to ultra running, started looking at FKTs. And I mean, tell why, why? why and at the time you were still racing triathlon so how do you even fit that in um you did the vermont long trail first and that was in when was that 2017 2018 yeah and that took i mean you spent like months preparing for that it took a long time yeah that was a big big project so what happened was i think in let's see um 2014-ish, there was a movie that came out on Netflix, um, a documentary called Finding Traction. And it was about ultra runner Nikki Kimball. She's absolutely legendary, like easily one of the top five 
you know, human beings in ultra running history period. And so when this movie came out, everyone in ultra running was like super excited. We all watched it. And I was like, man, for, for whatever reason, I was watching this and it was about her running a record attempt on Vermont's long trail. And I was, I mean, it was one of those things. It's like when you're online shopping and you like see something you like and it just sticks in your brain and you like just eventually a week later, like I have to get this right. Like it's just in my brain. I need to just click it and, you know, buy this. And so it stuck in my brain for like years. Like it was always just filed away back there as this thing I wanted to do. And I had been like, you know, but that was the same years I was caught up in go racing pro and like moving and really trying to focus on Ironman and see what that could bring. So it just, it's stuck in the back of my brain back there. And then after, you know, 20 some Ironmans, I was like, Hmm, like I'm a little bit just complacent, right? Mm-hmm. Like I just, um, one thing Hillary has definitely instilled in me is like race, whatever you want, just like be excited to get up every day and do the training that goes along with it. Like she could care less if I raced six Ironmans or one. Right. But we just want me to be motivated to do what it's going to take to to race what I want. So I just started to realize that like I wasn't, I didn't feel like I was making a ton of gains at that point with Ironman. I was kind of a little bit stuck with the training. And then I was just, you know, I don't even know if bored is the right reason, but just complacent, I would say like, you know, so I started to, you know, go back to like the bucket list of races that I would want to do and things like that. And I, just kept coming up with like Vermont long trail, Vermont long trail. And so it was, you know, about a year ahead of time where I said, I think I want to do this. And so Hillary's like, all right, like, let's start, you know, making some plans and prepping and things like that. And I had planned to do like a scouting trip. So the fall of 2017, um, my mom came with me up to Vermont and I had planned to run like four or five days trying to cover 20 to 25 miles a day on a trail that I hadn't seen yet. Right. And so like she was going to kind of leapfrog me and pick me up so I could do point to point, scout out the trail and really make an assessment of like how possible this thing was. And the first day, Kelly, like I, I didn't make it the whole way that I wanted to, like my mom picked me up early, I think. And then I was so sore because I had never run trails this technical in my whole life. Like I had just never seen anything like that. And so I was like, oh no, like what have I done? So I was like, okay, well I have to like kind of limp through these next few training days and just keep seeing the trail. But I had this conversation with Hillary while I was up there that was just like, dude, this is way harder than I thought it was going to be. Like, I don't know, you know, like Nikki Kimball is legit after all. And so (laughs) maybe this like whole little dream I had is, was silly. And Hillary just took the time and like, was like, listen, if you want to do this, let's do it. Like, forget about getting the record or not. If you want to run the long trail, we're running the long trail and we're going to get you ready and you'll do your best. Like, don't think about it in terms of getting the record or not as like your deciding factor, right? Because so much can happen. And so I was just like, oh, brother, like, okay. Like I I did, I really wanted to do it, but it now scared the bejesus out of me. So I finished that up and I, that trip up and I realized like exactly what I had gotten myself into. And so for the better part of the next nine months, I did, I was doing a lot of planning. Like at first I still thought that I should do some Iron Manning. So I decided to race like an early season Iron Man that year with Challenge Taiwan. And so, you know, Iron Man training was like really good base endurance training for that. So that was cool to like get me through the the early spring and things like that. And then in that time I was doing all the logistical planning that something like that takes. And so and then I made the decision in June and July to actually move up to Vermont for the summer and train like see all the other miles of the long trail that i hadn't seen already really get used to that type of terrain and just kind of like you know try and get as much good karma as i could from that trail (laughs) over those two months um to get myself as prepared as i could and it's slowly like yeah the the fitness is very different from ironman fitness and the strength that it requires but like i said like being you know, that triathlon training was definitely really good base training for all of that. And I think there were a lot of positives to being a triathlete, taking something like that on that 
really helped, you know, me, me kind of navigate that space as I was training for it. Because in terms of training, I mean, you, you weren't doing as much run mileage as like somebody would think because you were doing some like biking and some swimming for like offsetting. And there's a lot of just like time on your feet, right? Like just spend time on your feet when you're tired. Exactly. So the long trail, you know, for, for anyone who doesn't know, it's 273 miles uh, long and the there's about like 65,000 feet of elevation gain in that 273 miles. So it's a lot of up and down. And in that it's very, very technical, like Rocky that you, you know, just like very, very technical until you've really seen it. You, you can't, it's really hard to wrap your mind around. And so it was like bushwhacking basically yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like ladders at some part, like it's not even a trail. And so the pace different, you know, so going out and training by like running 100, 200 miles a week or whatever, right? Like would get me fit, but it's not, it wouldn't get me like as strong as I needed to be to do. Like the record pace was three miles an hour, you know? And so you tell someone like, oh, I just need to go three miles an hour for 20 hours a day for five days. And it's like, okay, like that sounds like a really long walk, but like, I'm sure you can do it, you know? And, um, but once you see the terrain, it's much harder. So it was a lot, exactly what you said, like a lot more about shifting my mindset to be about like time on my feet and embracing not a lot of sleep, really long days. And just like, I mean, the the whole like relentless forward progress type of mantra where I literally just had to keep moving, you know, for 20 hours a day and that would get me there. But it wasn't necessarily about needing to like nail these huge mileage numbers. And if anything, being able to bike and run, I think saved my body so that it wasn't super beat up going into my actual record run because, you know, I could, you can spend four or five hours on a bike and not be too worse for the wear, but like you've gotten in that training of like, Oh, you know, five hours after, you know, and then go for another couple hours hike and then maybe a swim. And it's just all about like putting together these long days so that that becomes normal. Right. Right. And I mean, how did you practice the sleep deprivation? I know is the big factor. Did you practice sleep deprivation? Like, were you prepared for that at all? No. So <laughs> I made the decision that it just didn't make sense because I was like putting myself into that kind of a hole right. on trying to train a bunch. Like I just, you know, and I was there by myself a lot too. So I was like, it seems like more dangerous than it's like really worth. Let's just like cross our fingers and hope that like I take to sleep deprivation really well and it's going to be fine. And so I will say that that was one of the differences between like doing the long trail and then doing the 46ers and that Adirondacks is I learned a lot. Like I think you, there are certain strategies about like how you break up your sleep and kind of how you go into something like that that make it better. Um, but it's also one of those things like everything else that we train for in endurance sports or Ironman. It's like once you feel it, like the first time you feel it, you're like, this is awful. Right. But then like you start to be like, well, like, it wasn't that bad. And I think I can do it a little bit better. And like, I can be a little bit stronger and things like, you know, so going into the Adirondacks, I just kept remembering how awful it was on the long trail and being like, I remember that feeling. I didn't die from that feeling, right? Like I need to just be, know it's coming mm -hmm. and like be calm about it. Because I think that's one of the things like, it's very easy to just panic when those types of feelings start coming over you. And, um, you know, sleep deprivation is just, it's so wacky. You just lose all sense that things are in your control and that, you know, things are going to be okay. And so once you realize like you're surrounded by a good crew, they'll keep you safe. You just have to like be tired basically and embrace it. Did you like fall asleep in a bush like while someone was changing your shoes? Yeah. Yeah, it was really bad. I, the, the long <laughs> trail was really, really hard. Um, I mean, five days. So I, I had, I want to say 16 or 17 hours of sleep in those five days. And I was averaging like 50 miles a day. So it was tough. Like it was just, mm -hmm. a, it was just really hard. And the last um, segment was through the night, you know, we kind of got to the end, like right after sunrise. And so those dark miles when you're doing something like that are just so hard. And there's that period of time in between probably like midnight and 4am when it feels like the sun is never going to come up again. And I mean, it's like the most irrational thought, right? But you can easily convince yourself that 
the world is ending. Like you're on the wrong trail. You've like, you're in a different state now and the sun's never going to come up. This is how you go. Like, this is the end, you know? (laughs) And it's just like, it sounds so serious, but, and it's like, when you do it, you're like, this is it. This is how I go, you know? And so I also had these terrible blisters. And so at one point I had, um, stopped to have my, my crew, like fix my feet. And I laid down on the side of the trail with my feet up so they could do it. And, that fern bush felt like, like, you know, a Casper mattress or whatever, like a Tempur-Pedic. It was so nice and so fluffy. And they like gave me a, you know, they woke me up, gave me a Red Bull. And I was like, man, I felt like I had, you know, slept for an hour. And they were like, it was 10 minutes, but (laughs) it was the best thing. Like it was, yeah, it was like coming back to life. It's amazing. Uh, yeah, I also feel like we should say like you also had Taco Bell at one point, and I only know this because I included that detail in a story on ESPN, and it went like viral. Like, which by the way, what's it like to go viral? I know that was like the biggest. Yeah, that that um was really cool. I think <laughs> you learn to then be able to pivot that. Like people want to talk about the Taco Bell, and then you're like, yeah, but also like really the cool story is the fact that I ran 273 miles. So let's talk about that. <laughs> It did. It was like everywhere, though. It was kind of funny how it just kind of got picked up all these places. I know, but no Taco Bell sponsorship to boot. So got to keep trying. So then this summer, obviously this last year with no races, FKTs, fastest known times were super popular. I mean, there was I've seen the stats. There was some huge explosion, record number of FKTs attempted Um, just because people I mean, it was something to do. It was something to like go out and kind of set a goal for yourself. And you did the Adirondacks 46 High Peaks, which is a kind of a weird one. And I feel like we should like explain what that is. Yeah. So you're right. They did explode. So I think the the latest stat I heard was that there were like 2,900 FKTs set in the US last year, which is huge. I want to say it was like barely a thousand or something. Like it was a huge ginormous number that was set in the last year and it's been awesome. And so the 46ers, so... In um, upstate New York, there's the Adirondack Wilderness, and it has 46 high peaks is what they call them. It's the 46 peaks above 4,000 feet. And so um, that's like this historical list that has always existed as the 46ers. Um, And it's always been a thing where people kind of hike them all through their lifetime and and things like that and to become an official 46er. And so, of course, as competitive people do through time, there had been men setting records on how fast they could climb and like speed climbs to get them all done, right? And so um, I think the first one was like the early 2000s. And then um, 2008 was like a pretty stout record was set for the men's side of the 46ers. And then um, in 2019, a guy like bested that. So it had been like kind of standing for a decade and he he took it down quite a bit. And so um, it had been something I was eyeing because I I like that kind of terrain. The terrain is very similar to the Vermont Long Trail. Um, but this was like a very a different challenge in that the long trail was marked. So there were white blazes on the trees the whole way. It goes north to south. You can get lost, but it's like pretty hard to get too lost kind of thing. Um, the high peaks have well-maintained marked trails to about half of the 46. And then the other half have what's called herd paths. So it used to be like probably 10 or 20 years ago, it was quite like you know, um, you, you really need to like have some sense of navigation skills and things like that to get to the top. But now as it's become more popular, there's like a herd path of people kind of making the best way to the summits. And so, but it is unmarked. It's very like rugged and wild in those peaks. And so that kind of takes it up a notch. And then when you're doing something like this, there is no set route. So, Of course, if you're hiking them over the course of your lifetime, you pick what you want to hike on any given day and you go do it. But if you're doing for a record attempt, you want to connect the peaks in the most like efficient way possible, right? So you basically get to create your race course, you get to create like how you're going to tackle those 46. And so that was like just a whole new element. And as I had come off the long trail, I started doing some more orienteering and learning navigation and really enjoy that side of like being in the woods and being on trails and, you know, bushwhacking I find is, is like actually quite fun. Um, so that was a big reason I really, you know, wanted to do the 46ers was just getting to add that challenge element to it, to be bushwhacking and navigating and, 
kind of dealing with that sort of stuff that I didn't get to see on the long trail. And you were able, I mean, there's also all these rules around FKTs, like supported versus unsupported. And you've been doing supported ones, so you have a crew and stuff. And then this, you were allowed to drive between the peaks, right? Yeah. So there's little clusters kind of of them. So like people listening to this might be more most familiar with the town of Lake Placid. And if you ride like the seven, they have a 70.3, a 70.3 or Ironman course, you ride right down to like the base of Whiteface Mountain. So Mm -hmm. there are, um, you actually, you know, you've seen that one driving in. You've also seen some of the other ones that you just, you know, haven't probably known, but you might see like Mount Marcy is the tallest one. So like that one you might know of, but then there's actually like probably 90 minutes away from Lake Placid. There's like two other spots kind of where you can go and you have a handful of peaks to get over there too. So doing supported, I could, like I had the option to drive between the clusters if I felt that was the most efficient way. Like you could bushwhack or kind of find trails to connect or something like that. But I felt, you know, the route I did, I definitely had some driving in between to like get me to the next kind of jump off point that I thought was the most efficient. And I think I think that a lot of like triathletes, and this is weird because, you know, we're very type A supposedly, but the thing that a lot of triathletes like struggle with is how much planning is involved in this. Like, how do you even get started? How do you know what is an FKT? Because this isn't just Strava. Like, you can't just like declare your driveway a segment, right? Like, there are certain <laughs> FKTs that are accepted. How do you figure that out? How do you, you know, and you made binders, like you had to plan this all. Yeah. So, I mean, there's there's a range and there's like a spectrum, right? And so... Um, you know, if you want to just start to take a look at like what's out there, definitely just go to fastestknowntime.com and you can search by like, um, by looking at the map, you can search by state and kind of scroll through and see things like that. And I mean, again, it's expanded so much in this last year, I can guarantee probably there are routes like pretty close to just about anyone listening that you might not realize is like a FKT route that people are doing. And so, you know, that is, that's kind of part of it is like just taking a look at what's out there and then seeing what gets you excited, right? What will get you motivated to train and that kind of thing. And then from there, depending on like the length of what you want to do, it gets more or less complicated from there. You know, there are a lot of routes that are done, you know, 50 mile distance or less. And, um, you know, those are something where you could, you don't need binders full of logistics and you might only need one friend to help you bring support out if you want to do it that way, you know, that kind of thing. And you can also do things like self-supported or unsupported, which means like you don't have to make a binder to be able to give to anyone else to make sure they're going to be in the right spots with the right stuff. Like it's just all on you and you get to have that knowledge in your head. And so it's, it is cool. Cause there's like a, just such a spectrum of ways that you can do these things that I think fit pretty much anyone of any abilities. And it doesn't even have to be about like going out and going for a record time. I think, Mm -hmm. you know, it's really cool to see people who just go out and like want to run the route because it's there and to see that experience. And maybe they didn't even realize it was there until people started racing it, you know? So, um, but definitely, you know, fastest known time is, is the place to go. Um, fastestknowntime.com. And then if you do supported attempts, though, it does. It gets so much more complicated because you have this like amazing group of friends and family and everyone else who's there to help you. But like they're looking at you to tell them exactly what to do. And like no one wants to mess it up. Right. (laughs) So you have to try as best you can. And that was something too. like, you know, I had to pick people who had endurance sports like background and knowledge because a lot of what the crew is doing is like starting with plan A and then having to evolve and create their own plan B right. and plan C and plan D because things just kind of go haywire and you know you're never going to be perfectly on schedule and things like that so you have to have people out there who are comfortable kind of dealing with that I mean you when I say binders like you made binders of like what expected times and then maps because you if you didn't have reception and then like what to put in each van in each box and what to have at each stop just so you could, yeah. wouldn't waste time. Yeah. It's super fun because that that fun. is like an element that I love of it is that the ones that I've done, at least we've had, I mean, you have no cell phone reception, right? So it's like, everyone wants to know what's going on. You're like, yeah, I would love to know what's going on too, but like my phone doesn't even turn on out here. Right. So, um, I, yeah, you have to make, and 
people are just, we're also reliant on like our cell phones to be able to do the maps and the things like that. And so to go basically back in time and to print out all the directions and the reservation forms for like a hotel that they're staying at or like wherever they're sleeping and things like that. Um, it is tricky because you know, the long trail took five days and then, uh, the 46ers took three and a half days. And so, I'm out there the whole time, you know, sleeping bits and pieces along the trail, but those, you know, eight people you have with you, like they have to be sleeping somewhere, you know? So it is, it's just, it's a lot of layers of, of logistics and at some level. It sounds very unappealing to me like that part. (laughs) (laughs) Then the, the, so the 46er that you, so you got the FKT this summer, there's actually two women kind of going at the same time and we could like follow you on one of those GPS tracker things, which was kind of fun. Yeah, that was that was the first, I think, and only time that they have had two people race for it on the same day, like going at the same time. And I was going head to head with Sarah Kyes. She's a really um, great ultra runner out of that area. She lives in Saranac Lake. And so she was kind of like the local competition. And I was kind of like this woman coming in being like, I can do this. I'm a triathlete. And so but we did we like embraced the fact once we realized that we were both going for it. And decided to start on the same day so that people could watch us go head to head because our routes were different. We were starting at different places. Um, our paths crossed once like right in the middle of it, which was like wacky. Cause I think we were both just tired and like, you know, ready to keep going. I know I had like a Coke mile further down the trail. And that was like, all I could think about was like my crew who was bringing me a Coke to that like spot. So, um, but it was, you know, a really, it was definitely a different element to add that race part into it because, you know, I think with something like an FKT, you're going as fast as you can, but you also kind of have the ability, especially if you're like on track or ahead of track to be like, okay, like I can relax a little bit. I'm still like doing, you know, but adding that race element in, it was like, no, like there's no relaxing this time, like pedal to the metal because I need to be there first, (laughs) you know? So, um, but it was, it was fun. And uh, so it was named for people who don't know, fastest known time. They declare like the top five FKTs of the year, right? Like all, um, it's a thing in the ultra running community. Yeah. And this past year, obviously, it was kind of a big deal. And so you were named one of the top five women's FKTs. What is that like? Enta- why was it one of the top five? What made it one of the top five? So they have a voting panel, which I'm actually on as well. So the voting panel, I think, is like I got on the voting panel after the long trail. um, And so now I'm just on it. So um, it's convenient for when you also run one that's like nominated. So they have like a back process, the kind of the guys that run fastest known time to pick kind of they narrow it down to probably I feel like 20 or so male and female options of what they think is like top tier. And some of what they base that on is like, they have the classic routes, like the long trails, a classic route, the AT, the PCT, like those really long ones are all classic routes. So if someone sets something on that, it's usually a pretty big deal. And then they look at the other ones too. Like if something's just insanely fast or really got a lot of hype, you know, they'll throw it all in there. And, um, and then they have the, the voting, you know, panel, we, you go in and, you just kind of rank and leave comments. So you you rank your top five and everyone else ranks their top five. And then they just literally count the points and see how it ends up. And so I was in a four or three-way tie for fourth um, this year, which was really cool. Um, I actually, I won FKT of the year for the long trail in 2018. And so just to be back in the top five was really cool. But then also in a year when, I mean, the women were like, they just did such insane things this year um all over the u.s like supported unsupported there were these really cool battles going back and forth like nolan's 14 women you know one woman break it this other woman would come break it the next week the next one you know and that's really hard and so like it was it was just cool to be you know among kind of the the other women who did that and um recognized you know i I love the the areas that I've run in, in Vermont and in the Adirondacks. And so it's always also extra nice to kind of get to hype them up a little bit. And hopefully, you know, maybe there are some Ironman people out there who want to add a high peak to the day after Ironman. Like, I'll do that. Anyone who wants to hike a high peak day after Ironman Lake Placid, if I'm there racing this year, you know, we can all, we can pick a fun one. Oh, that, there you go. I actually feel like we're going to take you up on this. This is going to be a thing. We're going to do okay. <laughs> I feel like we can just like strap a microphone on, right? Like have a, yeah, we'll see how it goes. I'm sure everyone will be really feeling great for that, for that hike. 
So there is my next question. So do you feel like one, are you going back to triathlon? Do you feel like all of this is good or bad for triathlon? Um, Cause obviously like, I mean, I think our, our listeners, you know, wanted to do different things this last year. I think we all did different things last year, but now I'm ready to go back to triathlon, right? Ready to race again. Yeah. So doing, you know, doing something as extreme as like a multi-day thing, is kind of one category. And I don't think it's like good or bad for triathlon because again, I think like the mental toughness and kind of the resilience, like I gain from that aspect of it really will help me in triathloning later and things like that. But, you know, if you stick to kind of shorter ultra running or trail running, you know, 50 K 50 mile, hundred K, I think you absolutely can like add that in to a normal triathlon season. I was definitely doing like some Ironmanning and then late fall or winter ultra running. And I found that to be a really good fit. Um, it's nice to like have the Ironman as a break from all the running and then maybe take the colder months where you don't have to bike outside and you can just like go hike and play in the woods. Right. Which is, this is more fun in the winter. So, um, you just have to be aware. Like I, you know, I always would say, get a coach that like can help you kind of navigate that space, but there's no reason you can't kind of navigate your training blocks and things like that to do more of a strength block for something endurance wise, like trail running or ultra running, and then kind of, you know, pivot into something more speed related. Like I've really spent the last probably three or four months um, after I recovered from the Adirondacks, just focusing on leg speed and doing a lot more fast running and shorter running that I hadn't been doing in a while. And it does come back like it hundred percent comes back. Um, There's certainly weeks where you're like, doubting that it will come back, but it does. <laughs> it really does. If you just, you know, kind of keep banging away at it. And, um, I think that my legs are just, you know, my whole body is stronger than it's ever been in general. And, you know, knock on wood resilience and, and injury wise, I think it, it actually has made me more durable to spend a lot more time on trails. Why do you think triathletes haven't really, I mean, haven't really taken up the FKTs? It hasn't really caught on in the triathlon community. Which is a shame because I think there is a lot of untapped potential for the multi-sport FKT. And so those are never going to, you know. There's like one famous one where you like like bike to a lake and swim across the lake and then run up a peak. Yeah. But even like the rim to rim to rim alternate route has kind of gained some traction where you swim across the Colorado River, right? (laughs) Like that's super cool. And like, you know, people who do Ironman are perfectly fit enough swimming wise to swim across the Colorado River and take like this rim to rim to rim challenge to the next level, you know? So, um, but I think, I think that hopefully people will start coming over more um, and, and doing some more of those adventures. I think a lot of it is the barrier of like knowledge and comfort, you know, um, Mm -hmm. when I start working with an athlete who wants to spend more time focusing on trail running and stuff, like it's, it's scary. It's like going back in time and learning to bike on the roads for the first time. And sometimes it's just a matter of making yourself do it and do it again. And, you know, like when you first start to ride outside on the roads, you might pick a, a short loop and just do that loop, the 10 mile loop five times to do your 50 mile ride if you had to, right. Cause you're comfortable there. And it's the same kind of concept with getting out in the woods, like find your local or, you know, local state park or something like that, that has some trails go out on a weekend when it's probably going to have some other people out there do a short loop, you know, and don't have any like pace goals, nothing like that. And just go out and like be on the trail. And then if you do that enough, you get more comfortable and then, you know, you might want to go to the bigger park or the bigger mountains and try a trail there. Um, and there's a lot of resources like trail sisters is a great resource for women who want to get into it. Um, and I think that a lot of local communities now have groups and things like, you know, like without COVID happening, um, obviously is, is a, a thing, but right. if you have local training groups and things like that to kind of just be a buddy system. Um, but I can say I do a lot of my training when I'm, I'm doing these things by myself and I have a Garmin that, you know, sends my location and I can use as an SOS button if I need. And I've just gained more comfort with more time on the trails. And honestly, I feel safer out there sometimes than like walking downtown. So, um, you know, it just comes with time and you can't really rush that process, I guess. But, um, you know, it's about just taking the first step sometimes. Yeah. It's interesting. I feel like the thing, okay. 
you get used to your trails and the thing that always freaks me out is when you go somewhere else and then you're like well shit like i don't know what the animals are here i don't know what i should be worried about here like you just don't know what the situation is somewhere new yeah and like navigation skills are really a great thing to have and they're a pain in the butt to learn like i never (laughs) learned compass skills growing up i was like the girl scout in the year that i did it like going the opposite direction that everyone else was going right like i didn't know north from south but I have spent time over the last couple of years with a local orienteering club and doing some of their like meets on the weekends where you get a map, you have your compass and you go to find these checkpoints as fast as you can. And one, it's really fun. Like it's a, just a different kind of competition and there's no expectations and whatever. But two, like you stop relying on the Garmin as much, right? And that the Garmin just becomes like a tool in your tool belt to have comfort outside. And so now I do, I feel like if my Garmin dies and I'm left with a map and a compass, like... I'll get myself out. And, you know, you carry, you you always carry like a compass, uh, hopefully a map of where you are if you're in unknown trails. And then, you know, like an emergency blanket, emergency puffy jacket, you know, and um, just talk to people about things like that, that you should always have. And then just, you know, err on the side of caution if you really are nervous, but there's not, you, of course, the news headlines will tell you the stories about like animals and things like that. But, you know, you just... You the news stories are also telling you bad things about the city streets. So well, I don't yeah. know. I mean, yeah, there's a whole nother thing about how much things are over over reported negative things. Right. But I was running <laughs> outside Charlottesville one time and I remember being like, Are there no people on this trail because I shouldn't be here? Or is it just like <laughs> there are no people? Like, is there something I don't know? <laughs> so. Yeah. Once you start thinking like that, it's like, it's a little scary, but, um, just keep going (laughs) just sing to yourself. Like I've been known to all like sing to myself or talk to myself or if I'm hiking and I can take my dog, like I just talked to Ramona. So, you know, the more you make noise, the animals aren't going to come eat you. That's true. That's true. It's hard to do when you're running full speed, you know, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So now you're getting back into triathlon a little bit. You have, you, I don't think you're, I don't think you're still nannying and hustling, but you still do a lot of things. Like you have your fancy microphone up right now that people can't see because you host a podcast every week, right? Yes. So with Haley Chura, we host the Iron Women podcast and it comes out on Thursdays. We um, chat with female professional triathletes and other kind of badass endurance athletes. So that, and then I have a full roster of athletes to to coach on a daily basis that keeps me really busy now. That's like my main hustle, I guess. Um, I'm doing a little Zwift racing to get me kind of back as I'm triathlon motivated. The Zwift racing isn't like a hustle because it brings in zero dollars. Right. But um, <laughs> but I am like I'm I'm hoping that Ironman racing happens this summer, and I would get to I love to race in Lake Placid, so um, we'll see if that can happen. I saw that on the calendar. I was trying to decide now. Now that you've committed to hiking with me, after I guess we're we're on. Oh yeah, <laughs> we should, right? It would be. I mean, that would be like the highlight of it for me for sure. So really? the race is like secondary at that point. I'll pick a nice, nice, fun high peak for us all. All right. So usually we finish with would you rather, but I want to ask you some questions first. So let's do a favorites. Like, what is your favorite workout? Uh, you and I had the same coach for a long time. I know there are some staples. What's your favorite crazy workout to do? Oof. I. So, I mean, Hillary Biscay is known for giving people 100 by 100 swims, and I'm not a swimmer. And like, so every time I do 100 by 100, I feel like super accomplished, I have to say. That's one of those that no matter how well I've been swimming, like it pushes me and it's like mentally hard. It's physically hard. It checks like all the boxes. And uh, yeah, so I think that's probably like my favorite staple yeah my favorite time ever was when she only booked the pool for two and a half hours and was like well guys you gotta (laughs) swim faster (laughs) (laughs) and what's your favorite uh you know uh food like mid mid race mid long thing that to to pick you up here Ooh, so In the 46ers, I did some like SpaghettiOs and Mm. that was really good. Um, And one of my crew members is um, from New Zealand and she makes, if anyone's raced Wanaka or anything that you know what I'm talking about, like the meat pies that um, Mm. Kiwis make. They're like pastry with like, she made these Thanksgiving meat pies that were hands down like the best thing I've ever eaten on the trail. And if I would have them for like every ultra and trail event I could, it was like cranberry, turkey. It was like a Thanksgiving meal inside your little pastry puff. It was amazing. So that like, yeah, I can't think of anything else now about food on the trail. Okay. And favorite like post-race recovery celebration. 
Oh, I mean, there's nothing like having a good cold beer after a race and like telling your war stories. That feeling is just so it's like the nostalgia of it. Right. So, um, that's probably what I miss the most too about racing right now. I was actually thinking that is the the part that's really missing from this last year. Yeah. Yeah. Those, those post-race war story beers. Oh, well, uh, thank you so much for chatting with us, Alyssa, and good luck. And now we know what to look forward to the rest of this year. So, Thanks, Kelly. I'll see you in Lake Placid. Thanks to Alyssa for all that great insight. Don't forget to go subscribe to the Fitter and Faster feed to get all the training and gear episodes or subscribe to this feed, the Triathlete Hour, for all of our interviews. And if you liked what you heard here, leave us a review or share with a friend. Sid Talks with Laura Sadal will be back next week. And in the meantime, keep training and keep listening.